Let's just, as we come to God's Word, let's pray to our great triune God uh, that He would bless us and encourage us as we open up His Word. Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You, the God of all compassion, our Heavenly Father. We thank You for the gift of Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. We thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit given to us to dwell inside us and to help us to live for you. We pray, please, by your Spirit now, would you help us as we open up your Word, teach us, encourage us, challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Prove it. Prove it. Uh, Show me the evidence. Don't just make a claim back it up, prove it. Um, I guess that's advice that we might hear in uh, lots of different spheres of life. Maybe for some of the teenagers as you're studying for, I don't know, GCSE history or something, that is something that you've heard your teachers say again and again. Don't just make the claim that, you know, in 1962 the world was close to nuclear war. Don't just make the claim, back it up, show your evidence. It's certainly true in the law courts, isn't it? You can't just claim that someone uh, robbed you. You've got to back it up with evidence, with CCTV evidence or fingerprint evidence or something like that. Or even you think of elite sport. You might say to someone, don't just claim that you're the best golfer or the best footballer or the the best rugby team in the world. Back it up. Prove it. Show us evidence. Well, last week we heard Jesus' disciples make some huge, huge claims about him. You may remember Andrew saying, we have found the Messiah. Uh, Philip, we find the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Nathaniel, big, big claim from Nathaniel, saying to Jesus, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Massive, massive claims about who Jesus is. Well, this week we're going to consider two questions. The first of which is, are they right? Is Jesus the Messiah? What's the evidence to back up that claim? I said a couple of weeks ago that as readers of John's Gospel, we're like a jury in a trial. We're called on to listen and to to think about and to consider evidence, and then to give our verdict. And so far, we've heard the big claims about Jesus. We've listened to John the Baptist's testimony. And now, in John's Gospel, in John 2, John begins to present us with concrete, solid evidence, what John himself calls signs, miracles that Jesus did, evidence of who he is. So as we think about this wedding in Cana, in John chapter 2, that is one of the questions that John wants us to consider. Is Jesus the Messiah? Does the evidence fit the claim? That's the first question that we're going to have a think about. Well, let's have a look as we look at this account. We're told in verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, that will, of course, help. We're told in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus... And his mother and disciples are guests 
at a wedding. And you can kind of imagine, no doubt, there had been some great speeches. You can imagine the kind of atmosphere that was there, a lot of good uh, goodwill, wonderful food perhaps, funny stories, a relaxed feel as they celebrate this wedding. But in verse 3, things all begin to unravel. We're told that the wine runs out. And you can imagine uh, these servants uh, quietly panicking. My bottle has just run dry. I've only just gone halfway around my table. I need another bottle to serve this table. One of the other servants says, you know, I, I've still got four guests on my table to serve. I need, we need another bottle. Where, where's the rest of the wine? As slowly and surely the penny drops, there is no more wine. Ah. But after some intervention from Jesus' mother in verse 3, Jesus says to the servants, fill those stone jars with water, verse 7. Now, who knows what they thought of this? Um, but any, in any case, they do what they're told, and they pour gallons and gallons and gallons of water into these great big stone jars. Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet, Jesus says, verse 8, and so presumably a servant dips in a glass and brings it to the master of the banquet. And with this water, which is now turned to wine, the master of the banquet tastes it. Now, my guess is if you were to film this, this is the moment where you put everything in slow motion. As the master of the banquet takes a sip and lets the flavor rest on his tongue for just a moment. And then pauses as he searches his brain for the right word to describe what he's just tasted. Exquisite exquisite. In fact, he's so impressed that he congratulates the bridegroom. In verse 10, he says to the bridegroom, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So there we have it in summary. Uh, John's first piece of evidence a wedding at which Jesus turns water into wine. Evidence, John says, that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he really is the Son of God. But just as we sit on this jury and, and having listened to this evidence, it's worth us just for a moment hearing those who would disagree, who might push back, who might try and poke holes in this evidence that John has presented. Because, of course, some will try and dismiss this evidence. Um, Richard Dawkins, famous writer and academic, uh, pours scorn on this idea. In a tweet in 2015, he says this, There are people who believe Jesus turned water into wine. How do they hold down a job in the 21st century? It's not actually an argument. What he's just saying is, this is absurd, this is ridiculous, this whole idea. But of course, it's only absurd if you've already firmly decided in your mind that there cannot be a God and that he cannot intervene in our world to grab our attention. But of course, a good jury wouldn't do that. 
a good jury will allow itself to be persuaded by solid evidence, even if it's not what they were expecting. And others will suggest that, others do suggest that Jesus turning water into wine is, is a misreading of John chapter 2. Some say that in fact what, what, what really happened, what John said really happened, was that the servants diluted the remaining wine with water, a bit like the way we might make uh, Ribena with a little bit of the red stuff, pour in the water, and you get more. They say Jesus wasn't really a, a miracle worker. He was a pragmatic problem solver, a good guy to have around. But the only problem with that is that we're told that there was no wine left. John says the wine was gone. And even if there was a tiny little bit at the bottom of the jars, you know, a tiny little drop plus 600 liters of water, that is not a good recipe for an award-winning wine. So I'm afraid that theory just doesn't add up. John says Jesus worked a miracle. He says the one through whom all things were made, the one who wrote the laws of physics into the very fabric of this universe, on this occasion tweaked those laws or suspended them to grab our attention. Is he the Messiah? Does the evidence fit? Jesus, John says, without a question, without a question, it is solid evidence. The only question is, will we allow ourselves to be persuaded by it? Will we follow the evidence? So that really is our, our first question. Is Jesus the Messiah? John says, absolutely yes. But then secondly, our second question for this passage is, well, well, what kind of Messiah is he? Okay, he's the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is he? Is he, is he a Messiah who's more likely to clip our wings or give us wings? Is he more likely to shut the party down or raise it to a whole new level? Is he more likely, has he come to burden us or to bless us? When we follow this Messiah, are we going to wither and die or blossom and flourish? What kind of Messiah is he? Because you see, it's possible to accept that Jesus is the Messiah and yet at the same time reject him and not follow him because we think of him as a killjoy. I think I mentioned um, last week about a friend who uh, read Mark's Gospel and was very, very impressed by it. Wasn't expecting to be, but really was impressed by it, but still wouldn't believe, still would reject Jesus. I, I asked him, why? I said, he said something along the lines if he didn't want his wings to be clipped. Jesus would spoil my fun, restrict my freedom, that type of thing. And of course, for us who, who do believe, again, it's possible for us to believe that he's the Messiah, but to follow him only reluctantly, to, if you like, drag our heels, uh, to think of ourselves as followers of Jesus as basically impoverished or burdened, uh, to view Jesus' ways and commands um, as a threat, to view them with suspicion. So to answer this question of what kind of Messiah is he, 
we've got to just look a little bit more, going to go back into this miracle and look at what John is emphasizing here about this miracle. So aside from the fact that Jesus really did this miracle, and it was a miracle, what is John highlighting for us? Well, there's a number of things that uh, would be very profitable to have a, to have a think through. Um, he, John emphasizes the stone water jars and how Jesus repurposes them. Uh, these water jars used for cleansing. We're going to think about that a little bit later when we come to the table and celebrate communion. Um, John highlights for us, I think, how uh, Jesus uh, takes on the role as, of bridegroom. Um, the bridegroom was the one who was meant to provide the wine. Jesus is the one who takes on that role and provides it um, for the guests at the wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's an idea that's going to come up again in a number of weeks. Uh, it would be useful to think about that, and we will do that in a number of weeks. But I want to just focus here on the, on the wine, because that's a big thing that John highlights for us. The wine, the kind of wine that Jesus makes, especially the quantity and the, and the quality of this wine, which is really important. So verses, verses 6 and 7, as we think about the quantity, how much wine Jesus makes. Verses, and six, verses 6 and 7, I think, read a little bit like a maths GCSE question, which John tells us that there are six stone water jars, um, we're told each holding from 80 to 120 liters. So Jesus told the servants to fill them with water, so they filled them to the brim. It's like a maths question, isn't it? So we'll do the maths. Uh, six stone water jars, each holding between 80 to 120 liters. Let's call it an average of 100 liters. Six times 100, 600 liters. Um, I guess if you were doing this as an exam, um, for an extra mark, how many bottles of wine is that equivalent to? This is a hard one. You, typical bottle of wine, three quarters of a liter, 750 milliliters. How many bottles of wine in 600 liters? It's quite a hard sum. I checked it with my calculator. I checked it with my wife, who's a math teacher. It, it, the answer is very close, very close. It's not the, it's not the answer I had on my sheet. It is... It, it is 800 liters, it is 800 liters, excuse me, 800 bottles, 800 bottles of wine. 600 liters creates 800 bottles of wine. You can correct me at the end if I'm slightly wrong on that. 800 bottles of wine. If Tesco were to arrive at your house tomorrow with 800 bottles of wine, it would take you hours even just to get them into the house. Never mind, where are you gonna store them? Jesus, John is emphasizing for us here that Jesus has made huge, huge, vast quantities of wine, enormous quantity of wine. Now, Jesus, we've got to be clear, Jesus is not saying that drunkenness is fine. His apostles later in the New Testament will make it very clear, no, drunkenness is not okay. But he wants us to be in no doubt Jesus has made here vast, vast quantities of wine, and we'll find out in just a moment. So Jesus draws, uh, John, excuse me, John draws attention to the quantity of wine. He also draws attention to the quality of the wine. Again, having tasted it, the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom aside, verse 10, saying, 
Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So this master of the banquet, he doesn't taste it and say, "Mm, that's not bad. He's blown away by how good it is. So much so that he gets up from his seat, walks across the room, interrupts the bridegroom on his wedding day to congratulate him and tell him how good the wine is. So those are the things that John wants to highlight to us about the wine that Jesus has made, the quantity and the quality of it. Why? Well, you see, this is what God had promised in the Old Testament, when the, when, the old, when the prophets look forward to the coming Messiah and to his rule, this is what they saw. They looked forward and they saw a Messiah whose reign was marked by vast, vast quantities of brilliant wine. So as Isaiah, Old Testament prophet Isaiah, looked forward to the Messiah... He spoke of a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. As Amos in chapter 9 looked forward to the Messiah and his rule, he spoke of new wine dripping from the mountains and flowing from all the hills. They looked forward and they saw, as they saw the Messiah's reign, the coming Messiah, they saw vast, vast quantities of extraordinary wine. And so by choosing to make huge quantities of extraordinary wine, Jesus is is announcing to his disciples, it's here. The age of the Messiah has begun. I am that long-promised Messiah. And I have come to bring a new era, an era of blessing and abundance and joy and gladness. I've come not to shut the party down, but to raise it to a new level. See, John is emphasizing to us that this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Come to bring blessing and abundance and joy and gladness. And for us who follow Jesus, well, this is, this is true of us, that this is, he, this is the kind of Messiah he is to us. This is true even now. And of course, to follow Jesus, we've got to be clear on this, to follow Jesus will mean to take up our cross. It may mean to, f- to face insults because of our connection to Jesus. It'll certainly mean swimming against the tide, going in the very opposite direction of the world and its values and attitudes. It'll mean taking up arms and waging war against our own sin. It, it may even mean embracing a worse standard of living as we say no to self-indulgence and yes to generosity and honesty. To to follow Jesus will mean to take up our cross. There's no doubt of that. But what John is emphasizing here is that even as we do that, we are going to find blessing and abundance and joy and gladness. Under the rule of this Messiah, we're like those guests at the wedding. Blessed. In what way are we blessed as we follow this Messiah? Well, we can bask in the warm sunshine of God's favor. Our souls can revel in the knowledge of sins forgiven and the freedom that that gives. We can follow Jesus' ways knowing that that's not just the right thing to do, but the best way to live, life according to its designer. 
we are given brothers and sisters and, and mothers and fathers in Christ uh, to follow Jesus together. Truly, under this kind of Messiah, we really are spiritual billionaires. That's who we are, spiritual billionaires. And that is just now, because when this Messiah comes back and ushers in his kingdom fully in all of its fullness, the blessings will come at us like a torrent. We will be comforted. We'll have our wounds tended to and healed. We will feast and celebrate. God will swallow up death forever and banish sin and give us new resurrection bodies and make a new creation for us to live in, a new creation where work will no longer be cursed, relationships no longer strained, and we will live with him forever. That is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, come to bring blessing and joy and gladness and abundance, both now and when he comes back. And so as we close, I guess the question for us is this. Do you have the right view of Jesus? Do you have the right view of Jesus? Do you see him not just as the Messiah, but as this kind of Messiah, a Messiah who, who, is, who has come to bring blessing and abundance and joy and gladness? Because how we view Jesus that's going to determine whether we follow him or not. It's going to determine how we follow him. Because when we see him as he is, the Messiah comes to bring blessing and abundance and joy and gladness. We won't drag our feet as we follow him. We won't see ourselves as impoverished and burdened because of our connection to him. We won't feel sorry for ourselves. We won't feel like our wings have been clipped. Now, when we see Jesus as he is, we will follow him gladly and we will submit to him gladly because we see him not just as the Messiah, but as a wonderful, wonderful Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what we've seen here in John's Gospel. We thank you that we can have real confidence that Jesus really is the Messiah, the Son of God. We thank you that we can put our faith in him with full certainty and confidence. And we thank you that he is a wonderful, good, generous Messiah whose reign is wonderful, whose ways are good. We thank you that we are blessed as we follow and submit to him. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see the Lord Jesus rightly. In his name we pray, amen.